Once again, hello, Rabbi. Morning, Joe. Oh, afternoon, Joe. <laughs> and hello, Roy. Thank you for joining us yet again. Thank you for allowing me to join you. And we're discussing firearms, and the the conversation is going back and forth about regulation versus restriction. And it comes down to free will and self-defense. What's the Jewish position? Is there a Jewish position on firearms and self-defense? Yes, there is. And I would just like to tell anyone who's watching, if you would like the sources, you can send me an email, Rabbi Block, and remember it's spelled B-L-O-C-K, at hotmail.com, and I would be glad to send you all the citations that I'm using, rather than saying them, and it's hard to remember whatever. So please, if you would like to know exactly what I'm quoting, I'd be glad to send it to you. The, it's called the law of the pursuer. The word pursuer in Hebrew is rodef. Din means law. So din rodef is the law of the pursuer. And it is the main legal source for the right of self-defense in Jewish law. It first appears in the Mishnah, which is the codification of the oral laws. It then comes up in the Talmud, which is the rabbinic discussion of the oral law, which is the place we look to when we say, what's Jewish law say about? And then later, uh, discussions. Halacha means law in Judaism. So later halachic literature deals extensively with self-defense. However, make no mistake, the right of self-defense is actually found in scripture, in the Bible. According to the biblical law, if a thief is breaking into a house at night, and that's an important distinction at night, and the householder kills him, the householder has no liability for the bloodshed. And the reason that the householder is exempt is the reasonable fear that a thief may attack the householder and kill him. This is based on the right of self-defense, but it goes beyond self-defense and expands to somewhat of a case of doubt. It states that even if the intentions of the thief are not clear, maybe he only is going to steal. Uh, he doesn't really intend to kill anybody. Bible says the householder is allowed to defend himself and kill the thief. It's obvious that in a case of clear and imminent attack on a person that endangers his life would be allowed. Uh, if, if it's questionable, if a thief breaks in my house at night, I'm afraid. I don't know what he's up to. I don't know what he's gonna do. I don't know anything. Why would he be in my house at night except to do something wrong, except to commit a crime, except to hurt me? If in that case, there's no liability for killing him, how much the more so in the case of clear and imminent attack, that when my life is in danger, I would be allowed to protect myself. The Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible says, if someone comes to kill you, you should kill him first. 
the right to defend oneself. A question, however, could be raised, what about the right to defend somebody else who might be under attack? If I'm witnessing an attack on someone else, have I a right to kill the attacker? Now, this case is not inferred from the source I mentioned, and it then the rabbis then broaden the definition of self-defense. And the definition is recognized by Jewish law. It's the Dean Rodef, the law of the pursuer. According to this law, if someone is pursuing his fellow human to kill him, any person witnessing, witnessing the scene has a right to defend the pursued, even by killing the pursuer. Are we talking right or obligation? I'm going to get that next because it turns into an obligation that you're obligated to stop the pursuer. It's not just the right to. However, the rabbis add, you're only to use as much force necessary to stop the pursuer. So if the pursuer is an 80-year-old geriatric in a walker with a knife, you, you have no right to shoot him. Because if you're an 18-year-old, you probably could walk up behind him, bop him on the head, take his knife away, or take away his walker. In which case, you, you have to have a little bit of sense in terms of it's not automatically. You're obligated to stop the pursuer with whatever is necessary to stop the pursuer. So I'm 75. And if I see an 18-year-old grab someone with a knife, I'm not able to stop it with anything other than using a, a gun of some kind, unless I could sneak up and hit him with a candlestick in the library or use a rope in the kitchen. But putting aside any of those things, it, so that answers your question. You are obligated to stop the pursuer with whatever you have at your means, whatever is reasonable. It's called the Dean Rodef, the law of the pursuer. You are obligated to stop the pursuer and you are obligated, required for self-defense. So that establishes self-defense. And then we may wanna discuss, like you mentioned, the specific circumstances when we would apply Dean Rodef. So all good Jews should take fire, basic firearm training in order to uh, adhere to the teachings of the Torah? Is that what we're saying? I, I would advocate that we become aware of our rights and it brings up a lot of things in history when we look at the right to self-defense and when and who tried to take it away from us. Now, Roy, you're a firearms instructor, uh, and I know you're, you're, you're going to go through the basic uh, movements or principles of safety and how to handle, carry, load, discharge, store. Is any of your training when you teach people or instruct people in, in any way how to avoid hurting the innocent or, or how to, you know, do you shoot the gun out of the, other, the bad guy's hand like they used to do in Roy Rogers? 
and movies are great for that. They don't work. Um, so yeah, so, so in training, um, so part of the 16 hours of training that I would do for state of Maryland would require legal aspects, your responsibilities to begin with. Okay. So, and that has to, I do it with a lawyer. So the lawyer comes in and talks to the group and we, we talk about their legal responsibility, but then also uh, the practical training, you know, so it's, it's basically eight hours of didactics and eight hours of physical training on, on the range. So we are measuring their, their competency as far as firing. And, you know, one of the concepts is you're responsible for every round that comes out of that firearm. So if, if you don't look to see uh, who's behind the target, you know, or your intended um, target, and it hits an innocent person, you're responsible for that round. So there's a lot of people have to recognize, and we definitely go through this in the class. We tell people right in the beginning, you know, this might not even be the right class for you. It, it, you know, if you want to buy a firearm to go to the range and have fun, that's great. Carrying it's a whole different responsibility. So um, you have to go through that training to understand uh, your responsibility. So we, and we do do as, as, as uh, Ken will uh, tell you, we put them through some stressors uh, as far as uh, when, when we train people, we go through that sh shoot, don't shoot scenarios. So just like a show in the movies where you go into the room. Correct. We, we, we do the same type of things that the police would do. And, uh, and then we encourage them to do other training. There's plenty of places that now in Maryland, there's a couple simulators that uh, are available to the civilian population to go practice a shoot, don't shoot scenario. But let's, Lloyd, let's go back to this idea of right. self-defense and can you talk a little right. bit about some of the history, not history, some instance that we're all aware of. I think Ken hit on it as far as the biblical, the, the, our right to defend ourselves comes from God, period. The constitution just guarantees it to us. And I think it's important to read um, the Federalist Paper 46 with Madison. So you have a global understanding with his essay, because uh, in the second or third paragraph, he goes through all this about just coming out of the revolution and that our, um, you know, Americans have, a, have an advantage over Europeans and the fact that we, we have firearms. So it's a government issue. So um, as far as, um, the, 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 the government gets their rights from us, the individual, you know, the, the citizens. So um, there, there's a lot of things. I don't want to get into the details of 46. But I think if everybody read it on their own and they can come to their own conclusion. But this goes back to, you know, um, we, we can go back to Hitler and my Kampf when he, he talks about. Um, OK, I actually had it. Um, so he, he states in his book, the most foolish mistake uh, we could possibly make would be to permit the uh, conquered Eastern people to have arms. History teaches us that all conquerors who have allowed their subject races to carry arms have uh, prepared their own downfall by doing so. Well, that's an interesting point, Roy. And it just this thought just occurs to me that all the people who are anti-gun and for more regulation uh, could say that we're in the position of defending ourselves against people 
who have guns and might use them against us. And by trying to further regulate or even make illegal most guns in the United States, that we're just being defensive and removing, uh, since we have won, if you want to call it that, through the democratic process, the right to, to make and, and describe laws, that we want to make the world safer for the United States, which I must point out, and I'm, I'm, I haven't got the statistics handy, our advantage of, in having guns re- is right now uh, resulting in a much higher proportion of gun deaths, whether it's by accident or self-defense or suicide, than all the other countries in the world put together. If I if I if I'm not wrong about yeah, that. but but you know, if I'd like to tell people to watch some other shows we've done, because we talk about safety and training and buying, and that all can be addressed. The idea of banning is something that dictators have always done. If you look at the history of China, China was a series of shoguns and each one controlled a territory. They kept fighting with each other and there was some acquisition. And finally, one one individual arose and he said, "We're we're gonna confiscate every sword in China. Then no one can fight against me when I take over. And sure enough, on the night of swords, He confiscated all the swords and united China. And it wasn't for the good of the people. And I think we need a balanced position. And again, I wanna alert us to extremes. We don't wanna go to all or nothing. We wanna be able to provide for individuals to defend themselves. Hitler and Mein Kampf, as Roy pointed out, said, we don't want Jews to have guns. And then 6 million Jews died, defenseless. But even, even going back to Joe's point, um, I think you still have to put that in perspective because certainly United States has a unique issue because we have the Second Amendment and we have firearms far beyond what most countries have. But the countries that have restricted it, their crimes go up. Their uh, home invasion is hardly heard of in the United States because as uh, the rabbi would say, an armed society is a polite society. So it's less likely um, somebody's going to invade your home in the United States versus England, where that's a common crime and people get injured, knife crimes go up and so on. And just, again, putting things in perspective, you're most likely to die from a knife wound or a knife attack than you are from a rifle shot. So we have to put the things in perspective, but going back to the, the, the conversation here too, is we see this in modern times. So if, as far as when, and again, I, I encourage people to read Madison's 46, but when you, you go back to Cuba, starting there, I mean, so I can bring it up. We'll start with Cuba. You know, Castro said after they won the revolution, okay, Everybody, turn in your guns. You're not going to need them anymore. We're in charge. If you don't like us anymore, we'll leave. I don't think that worked out too well. Uh, Chavez in uh, Venezuela, he was elected by a duly democratic process. After he was elected, he then got rid of their constitution, which kind of mirrored ours from my understanding. And now he, he removed guns from the public. So we have to think back to 
to our God-given rights to protect ourselves, not only from self-protection, but from governments that go astray. So I guess tossing aside the argument that uh, we hope only good people will have guns and do the right thing with them, it comes down to uh, basically how much control do we expect our government to have over our individual safety and how many regulations do we feel they have to be able to impose in order to keep us safe versus us behaving in a correct manner. Right. Is it a prison? Yeah. I don't think the government's ever going to be happy with uh, until we get to what the Shogun did, honestly because we've seen the, the escalation of this and they don't even enforce the laws that are on the books. So, you know, you, we, yeah, I'm trying to prevent myself from going astray here. Um, so there's so much to, to this, the meat of this. Um, but I, again, what uh, the rabbi I believe in is reasonable uh, um, regulations and licensing and training, which, should minimize the burden to the second amendment because again, majority of people who have firearms are law abiding citizens and they, they do the right things. I think I agree with Roy that we really need to start from the position that extremes don't work. They're not a good idea. We have a problem. So let's sit down and discuss our options rather than my way or the highway, or there's only one way. I think that's what's getting us into trouble. Just, a quick question. You tell you guys tell me the truth. So we should move towards more regulation or away from regulation. Yeah. So I, I, me personally, I, I don't think we need more regulations as far as uh, there's so many things. Actually, it, I, I think, you know, Congress or any legislation body should look at and, you know, have sunset laws where they have to physically look at it and see if something working. I'll give you an example in Maryland. They had a um, law here that required gun manufacturers to do a, a casing uh, print, meaning that they fired the firearm at the factory, put that in an envelope. When you bought your firearm in Maryland, that envelope would then be sent to the state uh, police for inventory and, and holding on to. So if the gun was in a crime, they could identify the gun. Uh, that way. They did that for over 25 years at some phenomenal millions of dollars of cost, solved zero crime, crimes. So basically, we, the taxpayer, paid all that money. It didn't work. Again, you know, we can look, go back and look at the Nick system. Why, you know, the reality is a lot of these uh, individuals, even recent ones, they went through a Nick's background check. Guess what? Their state did not have the information about their mental illness in the database to prevent the crime. So again, let's, let's make the laws, you know, let's relook at what we have right now. And then let's just come to the middle road and make some common sense decisions on, as we said, you know, basic training that would be inexpensive for most people to get, um, you know, a four hour safety course, whatever, uh, instead of making more and more uh, laws. We should just go back up. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Roy said. I think our, really we need to have the position for everyone involved, who everyone has an opinion, everyone's an extreme, to sit down with the intent of coming to a conclusion, not with the intent of 
convincing the other side that they're wrong and we're right. I think, again, that's what's getting us into trouble. And in my mind, I picture the closing conference scene from Lawrence of Arabia and how well everybody got along there. Thank you very much, Rabbi, and thank you, Roy. Uh, your wisdom and opinions are uh, insightful and very helpful. And uh, I hope we get to talk about it some more sometime. Thank you.